met you yet. My name is Dave Dorst. I'm the associate pastor here. And uh, you got your outline for this morning's message. Let's get going. One of the most impressive organizations working in Washington, D.C., in my opinion, is the International Justice Mission. It's led by Gary Haugen. Their mission statement says, International Justice Mission is a global organization that protects the poor from violence throughout the developing world. Uh, IJM, for short, partners with local authorities to rescue victims of violence, bring criminals to justice, restore survivors, and strengthen justice systems. Um, you probably know the Redskins quarterback, Kirk Cousins, when he was, a couple of weeks ago, he had this great comeback, and, and uh, he passed by the media room and yelled at him, you like that? And so they printed up t-shirts, and all the proceeds of the t-shirts go to the International Justice Mission. So there's a lot of people that support it. Does anybody hear that? Jeff would be so disappointed. Man. All right. Well, it happened. And he supports them. A lot of people do. It's a great group. Um, you may not know this. I hope you do. But there is more slavery today than at any time in all of human history. So groups like IJM, others, work to free slaves. There are over 30 million estimated slaves worldwide today. And the question is, how do you free a slave when it's already against the law? I mean, it was one thing before the Civil War when American slavery was legal and you knew you had to smuggle slaves out or buy their freedom or different ways, but it's against the law most places. And so how does a group like IJM free slaves? Uh, slavery victims, uh, they are in the shadows. They're moved around from city to city, uh, country to country sometimes. Um, many are forced to work in uh, bonded labor situations that they'll never pay off. They have no voice and no one to intervene for them. So Gary Haugen talks about six different approaches that they use for intervening for victims of violence or slavery in his book, Good News About Injustice. Number one is just spiritual intercession. Absolutely vital that we ask God to intervene. Two, personal appeal, privately showing someone how their actions have hurt others and asking them to release that person, appealing to their conscience. Three, uh, legal sanction, using the power of law enforcement to bring release. Four, public shame. If government and legal authorities are unwilling to do anything about injustices being committed, putting pressure on them through the media, public demonstrations, conferences, whatever it takes to force their hand to arrest and prosecute the oppressors. Five, economic sanctions, uh, figuring out how to cut off money to nations or groups that oppress and enslave. And number six, military force, usually the last 
resort for a group or a country that will not bend to any other method. So these are wise things, and I support this group. And I think they're having a lot of success. I read stories about uh, slaves and uh, sex workers that they've freed from their oppression. Um, and these are great ways in our modern world to deal with the huge problem of slavery. But I noticed that there was nothing in that list about sending frogs to pester the slave owners. It, nowhere in that list is making boils break out over the people's skins as an effective deterrent to keeping slaves. And they, they probably would not approve of killing the firstborn sons of the slave owners to force their hands. And yet, those methods have worked. Right? This is what we find God enacting in order to get his beloved people free from the hands of their oppressors. Today's passage is Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. It's the first plague out of the ten that will be sent on Pharaoh and Egypt. So turn with me. It's in your outline there. Reading from the ESV. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and did not even take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven days passed, full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Lord God, give us wisdom and insight into this passage this morning. Bless our study, ongoing study of the book of Exodus. Pray that you'd take my five loaves and two fish of what I've prepared and multiply it in the hearts of those who hear. In Jesus' name.
So we've arrived in the Exodus story. God has called Moses to get his people out of Egypt. Moses has very hesitantly obeyed, uh, kind of recruited his brother to, to help out. Uh, they've convinced the elders of Israel, the Hebrews, that there's a great rescue planned. And they've marched into Pharaoh's court to demand that he let the Israelites go. To which he says, roughly paraphrase, heck no, and they're going to work twice as hard at their labor, and I don't believe that you've got a powerful God behind you anyways. Go away. So now God is going to reveal himself. God is going to get serious. He's said, he's been saying all along that I'm going to send great acts of judgment and strike Egypt with wonders. But we don't know exactly what they're going to be yet. I mean, if you'd never heard this story before, if you hadn't seen the movies, if you were coming fresh to the text, you wouldn't know. Maybe the first one, because it, remember it was one of the signs back in Exodus 5. And that's the one we're going to deal with today, the first plague. Um, we're going to take a month off for a study of the book of Ruth during Advent. Then we'll return to them in the new year. And as we start studying the plagues, it's important to understand the reason that God sends them. They're not just acts of vengeance. Um, so I've made up four things. I'll start with E. Got them there in your outline. Dave, you can use these in January if you want when we come back to it. Got my permission. Good. So the first one, first reason is to expose counterfeits. The Egyptians were some of the most polytheistic people, right? Meaning they worshipped many gods. In the ancient world, the scholars aren't even sure how many, maybe up to 80, maybe more. Hard to count them all, but the, the plagues will be directed at undermining specific false gods. And the true God, Yahweh, is showing his power as greater than any false god. Number two, he's establishing his identity, his power. Remember Pharaoh had asked back in chapter 5 verse 2, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? He's not really asking, he's explaining why he's not going to listen. And, but God says here, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. To quote a song from the 90s, it's going to be a vulgar display of power that God gets him to understand. Three, it encourages the faithful. Remember the Israelites, the Hebrews had complained, I thought God was coming to help us. Where is he? Our, our labor's doubled, but God hasn't done anything. And even Moses is upset that, that God's not working. And so each plague will be visual evidence for the people that God is working. God is here. He's working his plan. Number four, escalate. You get the sense that each plague is just pushing Pharaoh to the edge. His heart keeps getting harder. And the but the despair must be mounting through the first nine plagues. I mean, just when you get relief from one plague, 
a new and often worse one comes. And it will all build to a climax where Pharaoh is broken and finally relents. So before we kind of break up the passage and look at each section, um, I want to talk a little bit about how just God's judgments are. And we could have a long conversation about that, but how do we reconcile them with his love? Just briefly, um, we have to start with this idea that we can't forget that God's sending us things to break us of our sin is actually love and grace. I mean, we kind of look at this passage and say, okay, yeah, God's being loving and helpful and kind to the Hebrews because he's starting to pull them out. But man, so mean to the Egyptians, right? But I see grace and patience extended to these Egyptians. He could have just wiped them out. But he's giving them chance after chance to repent to realize that they have unjustly enslaved an entire race of people and have been serving false gods. He's giving them the chance to worship Him and be saved. It's always love for God to break people of their lies, of their idols, and bring them face to face with the truth, even if they reject it. Have you ever heard a prison testimony where someone has hit rock bottom before they turn to the Lord? If you haven't, you should pick up the latest issue of World Magazine where there's an interview, and I, the interviewer is actually here. Welcome. But he interviewed a man named Michael Franzies, who was part of, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but part of the La Costa Nostra Mafia in the 70s and 80s. And he claimed that he ran scams that at the height of his, the scams, he brought in 8 to $10 million a week. But then he went to prison. And he said this, I spent 35 months in prison, 25 months, or 29 months were in a 6 by 8 hole 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just me and God. I didn't come to God easily. I challenged God. I didn't believe, but only God knows how many times I read my Bible. I came out of there believing that the Bible is God's word and Jesus, my risen Savior. Prison is fertile ground for God to do his work because God does his best work when we're at our lowest point. A powerful testimony. God was merciful in taking Michael down. What we see with Egyptians, what we see as harsh punishment, can be God's provision of salvation. So let's look at how this first plague unfolds, where, where God tells Aaron and Moses to go again to confront Pharaoh. He rejected it pretty harshly the first time. Let's see what happens. Verse 14 through 19 again. Let me read it. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. 
And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Now this scene should remind us of two other scenes, if we know the story, right? One scene is from the past, when Pharaoh's daughter by the riverbank sees baby Moses and brings him out. The other scene is from the future, when Moses will hold up his staff over a body of water that Pharaoh and his people are in the midst of. That time it will be the Red Sea, right, that will swallow up the Egyptian army and completely the exodus for God's people. But here, we don't know if Pharaoh's going down to bathe or going to worship or meeting people on official business. But Moses is going to confront him there and to announce what's about to happen. So there's no confusion about why the water has turned to blood, right? Pharaoh's not left to guess at the cause or the significance of of what Moses is about to do. And he tells him outright, listen, you have denied the Lord's request to let us go worship him in the wilderness, apparently because you don't understand who he is. It's time for you to get acquainted with the power of God. And so to accomplish bringing the first plague, Aaron does as he's told and strikes the Nile. And so verse 20, 21, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff, struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. The Nile River was the lifeblood of the Egyptians, and it now becomes the death blood, right? This is not just a change in appearance. There's commentators, uh, liberal scholars who say, oh, it's just the reflection of the moon or something. It's uh, the silt coming down into it. Well, you know what? That wouldn't kill the fish. It wouldn't spread all throughout Egypt. There's a change in substance. Imagine the sight and smell of blood running through every waterway in and around the land. It's truly horrific, especially as you think about all the dead creatures that come up. I want you to get a feel for how devastating it would have been to have the Nile undrinkable and unusable for even for one week. Hardly any country in ancient or modern times has been so dependent on its waterways as ancient Egypt. The Nile was responsible for trade, 
commerce, irrigation, drinking water, food, even the setting of the calendar. Tony Merida, a commentator, explains what, what that would look like to us. This type of catastrophe, catastrophe would be similar to cutting off all our oil supplies, the stock market collapsing, drinking water being contaminated, and having no food in the grocery store. It would be total chaos. And so maybe the doubts started coming in to the Egyptians' minds, right? The great god Kanum might, be the guardian, might not be the guardian of the Nile that we thought. Hapi was the god believed to be the spirit of the Nile. Perhaps he was impotent in the face of a more powerful god. Neith, the goddess of the large fish, and Hathor, the god of the small fish, might not have the power that's been credited to them. God humiliates these gods and brought Egypt to its knees when he turned the water into blood. But even so, this sign, this plague, seems to produce nothing but disbelief and thirst. Look at the last four verses. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, but they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now, politicians don't really like it when their policies bring about hardships for the people, right? It's not good for the image, for their re-election campaigns, if there's people discontent and grumbling and starving in the streets. So they have to reverse course or try new policies. But a dictator doesn't really care, right? He has the luxury of just turning around, walking back in his house. It's interesting that Pharaoh does not believe that it was really God's judgment making the water turn blood simply because he figures if his magicians can do it, then that must be how Moses did it. Right? We know his heart is hard, but he can just point to them and say, they can do it. That doesn't take God's power. However, the magicians accomplished it. The text says their secret arts. They couldn't do it on the scale that Moses does. And what would have actually been helpful at this point would to have been to reverse it. Do you think of that? Okay, maybe you can imitate it on a small scale, but can you reverse it? Give us the water back. Of course they can't. Satan is the great deceiver and can imitate God on a small scale, but he cannot undo the work of God in the world or in someone's life when God doesn't allow him to. Now, Dr. Dave talked a lot last week about Pharaoh's hard heart, so if you want a good, great discussion about that, go back and look at that sermon. Um, and, but again, today's passage, it's bookended with the observation that Pharaoh's heart 
was hard before the Nile gets changed, and it's still hard afterwards. And what we see is that a hard heart needs to see blood. What do I mean by that? Well, Pharaoh Pharaoh's not going to change as a result of conversations. It's becoming clear. He's, he's not going to read an article on repentance and go, oh, that's what's missing from my life. Right? He's not open to anyone in his palace questioning him and saying, hey, maybe you should be listening to those two Hebrew brothers uh, before things get really out of control. It's going to take a lot more than that. Right? His hard heart is going to need to see death many times. The fish have to die. Later, the livestock have to die. The crops have to be destroyed. And eventually, children will die before he changes his mind. And hard hearts today need to see blood. I don't mean literal blood, though. There's often something about being around death that makes us people start asking eternal questions. But a hard heart needs to know that someone bled and died for them. Christianity is not about behavior modification. You've heard that before. It's not about just becoming a little better every day, a little more helpful to people around you and weeding out some of the selfishness and sin in our lives. It's, that's behavior modification. That's good stuff. But Christianity is so much deeper. It's about dead people with hard hearts becoming alive in Christ spiritually and being given hearts of flesh. Right? And that new heart comes after the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see that you've been rescued from a bad place, that your sin has condemned you to eternal death, but there's someone who will take your punishment for you. And it didn't come easy. It, didn't, it cost that person his life, his blood, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. God himself, the second person of the Trinity in Jesus, bled and died in your place to take sin, sin's punishment for you. His blood is your covering. It's what opens your hard heart. We sang about it throughout, but certainly in the song, Oh Great God, the second song we sang today, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me. Through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. Now there's one more aspect of this story, this historical account that I want to look at. Uh, there's a there was a man, Francis Schaeffer, hopefully you've heard of him, read some of his stuff. Um, great pastor and theologian from a half century ago. Had a sermon called, No Little People, No Little Places. And it started with a catalog of the ways that God used Moses' staff throughout the book of Exodus. The, the sermon was really about the staff. And it, it talks about how, okay, the staff turned into a serpent and proved God's power 
and then they held it over the Nile to turn it into blood. And then later the parting of the Red Sea, it's even used in the wilderness as Moses hits the rock and gets water from it. And we see this staff just appear over and over. But it's just a stick, right? There's no power in it. It's not like the Elder Wand in Harry Potter. or It's not like it has a microchip that has some power. It's, it's just a piece of wood. Francis Schaeffer didn't have that part in it. But here's what Schaeffer says. Though we are limited in we- and weak in talent, physical energy, and strength, we are not less than a piece of wood. But as the rod of Moses had to become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God, then I can become useful in God's hands. Uh, I might have told this story before here, so if you've heard it, don't stop me. But I remember when I went back to Baylor, about 10 years after college, um, went back to visit some friends and had a great time. This was 2005-ish. Got to catch up with some guys. There was a guy named Victor who was a year younger than me at Baylor, and and we got to have lunch and catching up. And uh, he told me, hey... uh, Give me a, a few minutes. I'll be right back. Just finish your lunch. And I was like, really? Yeah, what, what's going on? He said, well, I got to go do this interview with CNN. It's about the NAFTA trade agreement. You know, President Bush is down here meeting with the leaders of Canada and Mexico. And I'm kind of an expert in that foreign policy. And so I got to go, you know, explain it to the world. <laughs> and maybe he didn't say it exactly like that. But he had gone on, gotten his PhD. He was now Mr. Hinojosa. And he was teaching at Baylor. And... I felt small. <laughs> I'm sitting there as I'm finishing lunch. I'm like This guy was like a year younger than me, and now he's being interviewed on national TV. And I mean, I did do a lock-in for middle schoolers last weekend, and I think we got a dodgeball kickball game coming up. So, I mean, my work is important too. But, <laughs> I mean, I sat there and thought, gosh, what did I miss? <laughs> I felt unimportant. I felt unaccomplished. Now, I knew intellectually that we were all called to different paths, that he was following God's call in his life using the gifts that he had been given, and I was following God's call on mine, but I still felt small. How about you? Do you feel small and unimportant? Do you wish that you were accomplishing big things? Does the endless laundry or the barrage of busy work in AP world history or the menial tasks that you've been given to accomplish in your little cubicle or whatever in your life makes it feel monotonous or unimportant and make you question whether God is, is using you? It's not just about how bad we feel about ourselves. Sometimes we can become bitter with envy and question God. Right? We can be Salieri, looking at Mozart, going, God, why did he get those amazing gifts? Right? I deserve those. What about me? 
If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you need to watch Amadeus, the movie. But maybe small is not a bad thing. Let me finish some quotes from Schaefer. It's a great reminder. The people who receive praise from the Lord Jesus will not in every case be the people who held leadership in this life. There will be many persons who were sticks of wood that stayed close to God and were quiet before Him and were used in power by Him in a place which looks small to men. Each Christian is to be a rod of God in the place of God for Him. We must remember throughout our lives that in God's sight there are no little people and no little places. Only one thing is important, to be consecrated persons in God's place for us at each moment. Those who think of themselves as little people in little places, if committed to Christ and living under His Lordship in the whole of life, may, by God's grace, change the flow of our generation. And as we get on a bit in our lives, knowing how weak we are, if we look back and see we have been used somewhat of God, then we should be the rod surprised by joy. I love that. Just close right there. Thank God that He uses us no matter how insignificant we feel. You pray first and then I'll close us. Father God, thank you of Exodus for the amazing account of your work with your people. Help us to remember the parallels to our lives that you call us out from slavery. You rescue us to be brought one day into your promised land. And so as we study these accounts each week, May we see ourselves in them. But understand what you were accomplishing and who you are. God, we know that you used look like punishment. It was judgment. But even in that, you showed your love and your grace and your patience and mercy to your enemies. And God, we all start with hard hearts, enemies of you, and yet you break through with your Holy Spirit to give us life. Life that was purchased, death of your Son. So may we see our lives in the grand scope of your redemption story. May you remind us that we are like Moses' staff. It looks like nothing 
from the outside, but it can be used powerfully to accomplish your will as we open ourselves up to your work in our lives, in our families, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our cities. God, we don't have to start a new organization. We don't have to uh, have a big protest rally. God, you use us where we are. Thank you that you use small, insignificant people who are not really small in your kingdom. And you give us the strength to stand, to live, and to follow you. So thank you for this body here at Potomac Hills. May we be obedient and faithful and diligent as we follow you. In Jesus' name.